tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, philosopher Jason Eberle joins me. In addition to being a medievalist uh, interested in philosophy, he's an ethicist. So you'll hear a bit of both in this conversation. And then after that, I'll include a short excerpt of my conversation with my friend Arthur Jamfa, where we talk about Tyrion's relationship to women in general a quick note if you are interested in other podcasts that i do you might be interested to know that steve and i have changed our other podcast from the title cocoons of horror to properly howard where we'll talk about all kinds of films so if you're not into horror come over and party with steve and i over at properly howard the lorehounds friends of the bald move community they are now hosting properly Howard. Okay, without further ado, here is Dr. Jason Eberl. I wish I had time, at least right now, to you know reread all these books. But when I pick up, but this was great about Martin is I can pick up and read just like the chapter we're going yeah. to discuss, and I remember so many other things from some of the other chapters because he's a master at creating touch points without naming other characters or whatever sometimes he he like this chapter absolutely you know brings in the Jon Snow narrative without ever mentioning Jon Snow right mm-hmm. uh, he's just brilliant he's brilliant at, you know the the Renly Stannis thing you know he doesn't tell mm-hmm. you he doesn't actually show you the siege of Storm's End all he does is use this chapter and then the next time we see that the two brothers are doing a little parlay. So you don't actually see the, the siege happening. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just intricately told these stories. Yeah. Let me read my synopsis of this chapter and we can jump into it. Sounds good. After telling Cersei that Stannis and Renly are battling each other, Tyrion slips his sister a laxative. The next day, he sits on the Iron Throne and holds court. He sends Cleos Frey back to the Starks with the demand for fealty and the bones of Ned Stark. He dismisses Alistair Thorne's warning of zombies and sends him back to the Wall with shovels and men to use them. After some scheming with Varys, Tyrion, Shaga, and Timot interrogate Pycelle. Pycelle spills what he knows about Jon Arryn's death. Uh, Jason Eberle, uh, what do you want to talk about today? Uh, oh, there's so much to unpack. You know, it, it's always amazing to me rereading these chapters. Um, just just how much um, George R. R. Martin packs into relatively short chapters, right? Um, so, I guess the first thing I, I would note is just how much deception is playing a role here. And I think this is true throughout the book. Um, the, in terms of the series of books, th- this one may be my favorite. Um, yeah, it's a great. It's I mean, the, the first book is really great. This one, it really seems to ascend. It, it almost takes the story up a notch. Yeah, and then in terms of the the television series, you know, that this would be the second season as well. I think again, it's my favorite season because it's. I, th- I think there's the most political scheming going on. You know, I like the, you know, Tyrion's machinations uh, and Cersei's as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Varys and Littlefinger, right? Uh, things you know change a lot when they all when 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 they kind of all split up, right? 
and and they all kind of go off to different places. So I like it when they're all here in King's Landing together, yeah. um, in the Red Keep uh, scheming. But um, but yeah, I mean there there there's a a great deal again of deception. Of course, we had the original deception involving John Aaron's death and everything that was involved in that while he was hiding. Um, Tyrion deceiving Cersei by slipping into the laxative, like you said. Um, and then, of course, you know, to what extent can you ever trust anything Varys or Littlefinger says? Um, and, uh, and and so the, this this function of of lying, right? A lot of philosophers, you know, talk about the ethics of lying, uh-huh. and you have everything from Immanuel Kant, who said you can't tell a lie even to save someone's life, right? Um, to you know, a consequentialist uh, theorist who would say, you know, lying is not intrinsically right or wrong. It's the reason that you're doing it. It's your purpose. And is your purpose to produce better outcomes, better consequences. Uh-huh. Um, and does the, con- and, wait, does the consequentialist care about your motives or does it, does the consequentialist care about your, your, the outcomes of the, of the act? So I think, uh, you know, there's range of consequentialists. I would say the sophisticated consequentialist cares about your motives insofar as those motives are aimed at good outcomes, a good outcome. Okay. So in other words, you know, there's, there's thing we talk about uh, moral luck, both good and bad luck. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, just sort of straight up consequentialist who's, who literally, literally only cares about the consequences, but say, well, what if you're aiming to pursue your own ends, your own power. Mm. Um, but that ends up helping to bring about something good and amazing. Um, you know, you could say that, uh, you know, various things that Littlefinger or, or Cersei or others do that are totally for their own ends actually end up serving Westeros better than they had anticipated. Mm. Um, but other consequentialists going back to say John Stuart Mill, who kind of brought in a little bit of virtue theory, right? But virtue theorists are concerned with, you know, the moral character of the, of the agent would say, no, 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 you have to have the right motivations or the right character oriented towards maximizing the greatest good for the greatest number. And then whether you succeed or not, that's kind of up to fate, right? And then maybe circumstances uh, outside yeah, your yeah, control. Yeah, yeah. So the virtue ethicist is very, very much interested in character. Like, mm-hmm. are you the type of person that'll run into a burning building out of instinct or something like that? Exactly. And and you might try to, and then something gets in your way and you're unable to do mm-hmm. it. So you didn't maximize the best consequences, but you were aiming towards that. You were trying to. And, you know, I think, and, and I think, you know, this is why I think Tyrion, both in the books and in Peter Dinklage's portrayal, is obviously, you know, a fan favorite, a, a character everyone warms to because, of course, Tyrion has his own vices. He has his own self-interested motivations, but he is seemingly genuinely interested in what's best for Westeros. Mm-hmm. And and not simply not simply what's best for Tyrion, right? If, well, if I, okay. well for Tyrion, I would say right, <laughs> I'm just gonna <laughs> just gonna interrogate that a little bit. Um, my it. feeling is Tyrion's interested in what's good for Tyrion. Number one, I think he's interested in what's good for the Lannisters as a sort of a as a clan. Number two, I think that he's interested in sort of what's good for the people of Westeros, number three. And this makes him unique in that for everyone, almost everyone else in the story, the people of Westeros are like number 10 on the list. (laughs) So, (laughs) so it's not like I'm not, if they're even on the list, (laughs) I'm not saying that he's, he's self-interested in a necessarily in an immoral way. I'm saying that compared to everyone else in the story, he he does he is quite interested in the common good but self and family would definitely be higher on his priority list what what do you what would you say to that no i i think that's fair particularly tyrion at this point in the story um i was kind of projecting a little bit you know towards further on in the story where or he kills his own father <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not putting family first right right exactly um and then 
uh, you know, and then obviously that forces him to go into exile, but then that leads him to discover Daenerys and to bring her back, at least with the with the aim with, of the yeah, in the, the show. That's service. what happens, and that's what we th- in the show we think is going to yeah. happen in the books. Yeah, so exactly. So, so the point being is that yeah, I mean, obviously characters develop, and so I think your ranking is perfectly fair, particularly at this point in, in Tyrion's development. Mm-hmm. Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. All new Pulp and Prestige this week. On Tuesday, we'll cover the latest episode of The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live on Pulp. And on Thursday, we'll catch up with the latest Samurai subterfuge on FX Hulu's Shogun. Then on our House of the Dragon feed, Anthony puts on his Maester's class on Monday. And then on Thursday, Steve joins him for Electric Bookaloo as they continue their discussion of George R. R. Martin's A Clash of Kings. Find these and many of our other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Prestige in your favorite podcast app. FX is adapting James Clavell's best-selling novel, Shogun, into a 10-part miniseries this spring. Set in the Shogunate period of Japan at the turn of the 15th century, Shogun depicts the rise of a feudal lord to Shogun, as seen through the eyes of a shipwrecked English sailor. It's loosely based on the real-life exploits of William Adams and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Shogun has already been successfully adapted back in 1980 with a widely acclaimed miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain, featuring intricate plots, political scheming, complex characters, and thrilling action. This time, husband and wife team Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo try to recapture the successes of the novel and early adaptations while increasing the levels of historical and cultural accuracy that are often perceived as flaws of this and similar works. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada from The Last Samurai, Mortal Kombat, and John Wick 4, with Cosmo Jarvis of Peaky Blinders, Raised by Wolves, etc., joining the truly massive cast required to bring this complex world to life. Join Aaron and I each week as we deep dive into each episode, uncovering the mysteries, the intrigue, and the glory of Shogun. Shogun premieres on FX Hulu Tuesday, February 27th at the two-part debut. Our podcast will release each Thursday thereafter. Get our Shogun coverage by searching for Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Rick, how you doing, buddy? You, you don't know what it's like out there. Hey, man, do you even know what it's like out there? No, not really. I've been mostly kind of flying around in helicopters, carving likenesses of Michonne into cell phones, that kind of thing. What is it like out there? Oh, well, I think it's time to find out, man. Last I saw your wife, Michonne, was out uh, following a giant wagon train. That that sounds pretty weird, but it seems like a family-friendly outfit. I mean, she's got RJ and Judah with her, right? Um, actually, she kind of left him to be raised by Negan and Daryl. Well, crap. Hold on, let me get my boots. All right, well, Rick is getting ready. Aaron and I are too. We're preparing to once again recommission the Watching Dead out of mothball status to find out what's going on with Rick and Michonne, the ones who live. The six-part miniseries premieres Sunday, February 25th on AMC, and we'll be ready with our full episodic coverage each Tuesday. And afterwards, who knows? Maybe we'll check out Dead City. Find our coverage for The Ones Who Live by searching for The Watching Dead or Bald Move Pulp wherever you listen to podcasts. I was going to ask you about his interaction with Cersei at the beginning of this chapter. Mm-hmm. I think that people have varying opinions about Cersei. Um, I think most of, most people view her as villainous. We, I mean, we can talk the, about the nature of her villainy uh, later if we want to. But Tyrion lies to achieve over a villain in one view. What would the ethicist, uh, and you can pick your ethicist, uh, say to doing bad to someone who's bad? In other words, like... Uh, it it can't be wrong to steal from a thief, something like that. So, like I said, it depends on the ethicist. Um, so, you know, earlier I mentioned uh, Immanuel Kant's take on lying, right? Where he says, you know, one can't 
tell a lie, even to save right someone's life. Uh-huh. And of course, you know, the sort of classic counterexample is, you know, what if, you know, it's World War II, you're hiding Anne Frank and her family in your mm-hmm. attic, Gestapo knocks on your door, do you have any Jews in your house? And, you know, Kant says, sorry, can't lie. Yeah, yeah. And he actually gives a kind of consequentialist reasoning for saying it. He says, look, what if unbeknownst to you, you know, Anne Frank and her family sneaks out of your attic and they went to the house next door. So you, so you lie and say, nope, no Jews in my house. So they go knock on the next door and boom, they catch the family, right? They wouldn't have caught them if you hadn't lied, right? And so constantly like, that's on you, right? You should have, so his, his take-home point is you should just do your moral duty no matter what. What's most important is right. your conscience is clean, yeah. right? Not what the outcome is. Now, another response to, Kant's take and that would be that would is, be some kind of expression of deontology exactly yeah. now like i said consequentialists would disagree with that but also some fellow deontologists and one of the the responses is to say the gestapo doesn't deserve the truth that yes we ought not to lie uh-huh. to people who deserve the truth and, and if you know you have these murderous villains and so on they don't deserve the truth they're not worthy of being treated as moral agents equivalent to the rest of us who are not murderous, you know, lying villains ourselves. And so that point about, you know, yes, Cersei obviously has her self-interested machinations. And and honestly, at this point, kind of as you were noting before, at this point in the story of the character development, it's just a battle of wills between Tyrion and Cersei, right? They're both kind of vying for their father's love and affection in a sense they're both trying to prove themselves uh to tywin um and so and and they both want power and exercise power and of course a lot of that is through the manipulation of joffrey uh and and this is kind of a side note but one of the things i i love in this chapter there's all sorts of examples of Tyrion manipulating people by understanding them and giving them what they want uh-huh. To serve his end. So, example, giving Joffrey the crossbow to distract him so he won't be sitting on the Iron Throne. Therefore, Tyrion gets to sit on the Iron Throne and exercise power in his hand. Right. right? Um, so, Tyrion's so good at, at manipulating people, as is Cersei. Um, and so, yeah, at, at this point, I think it's not even so much giving... I don't, I, I don't know if there's a proper ethical analysis of at least what Tyrion's doing, because I think... Both of them are just exercising what Nietzsche would call their will to power. Okay, my, my sense, my sense is that most people would say something like, "Yeah, big deal. Um, if you do something unethical to uh, someone who's fundamentally villainous, what is the big deal for that?" But I think most folks are unhappy with, let's say, the example of like dirty cops. Mm-hmm. And you could make the argument that, well, you know, these dirty cops are skimming money off, of, you know, drug deals that happen. Uh, what's the big deal? Everyone in this world that of the drug deal, most people would have a problem with that. Most people would say, no, we need our cops to sort of live up to a standard of ethics. They kind of have to be deontologists. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want consequentialist cops. <laughs> right. Um, so I think even even folks who sort of spout the consequentialist line on these things kind of are selective. So I guess to bring it back to Cersei, I, you know, what's Cersei's chief sin? Well, you could say she's a pedophile. I mean, factually, she's engaging in incest. Mm-hmm. But Lancel's... Barely 16, barely mm. 16. And she's manipulated him to, you know, get what she wants, uh, whether that in, in terms of sort of carnal desire or just having a political ally or whatever. But she's basically manipulated a her 16-year-old cousin, right? Mm-hmm. So in comparison, Tyrion withholds the truth from her and gives her a bad case of the runs. Like so <laughs> I, I think I think most people would be like, Yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna fault Tyrion for that. He's he's doing this to, to Cersei. She's a villain. Mm-hmm. Um 
I don't know. I, I feel like there's limits to how we view these things. Yeah, I certainly agree with you that most people would think there are limits. And I'm not even sure. I mean, I think it, it, the, the reason that sort of the big three ethical theories that we always talk about in intro philosophy classes, right? Theontology, consequentialism, or utilitarianism, and then virtue ethics is because, yeah, I think most you know people who never study philosophy just intuitively buy into some aspect of each mm-hmm. of these theories. And, you know, I think by and large are, you know, are a bit inconsistent how we apply them, right? We're, we're kind of consequentialists about some things and then talks about others and so on. But I do think in this particular example, you know, from the dirty cop example to talking about Tyrion, Cersei here, that really, I, I think the lens uh, is virtue theory because the idea is if you do certain types of bad things or even things that might be permitted uh, under you know one set of circumstances but it it cultivates this character so it, again cop wasn't a virtue theorist but going back to his example of lying to even save someone's mm-hmm. life you could think of a kantian virtue theorist saying well look you might lie for this good noble purpose now but that might just make you more prone to telling other lies mm about less dire circumstances to them maybe even lying mm-hmm. in ways that serve your own self-interest. And so it's about cultivating this habit, right? That's what virtues are or, or vices for that matter, right? These are hab- habitual inclinations of patterns of thinking and behavior that we sort of self-justify to ourselves. Oh, this is okay. You know, th- this is a morally bad thing. Um, and and right. so I think that, so, th- so the idea being that Tyrion you know, Tyrion is a liar, <laughs> as is Varys, Littlefinger, Cersei, right? They're, they all have the vice of being dishonest. I mean, okay, yes. However, I think Tyrion's a great talking point on this because I think that Tyrion actually enjoys telling the truth. He happens to be a good liar, but he also has this sort of like wicked glee when he says the truth when no one else in the room, you know... We'll say it because it's it's a sort of a polite he people prefer polite lies or whatever, and mm-hmm. Tyrion likes to upset that kind of apple cart. So I don't know if it's in I don't know if it's necessarily like he gets prefers glee over deceiving. I think he gets even more glee out of sort of revealing. Um, he happens to be good at lying at the same time. No, I, I think that's a very interesting point. I'm just thinking of this passage here from the chapter um, where he says. Um, okay, so, so I'll just read this brief yeah, passage. Littlefinger little stroked his beard. Do you truly mean to send away all your guards, Lannister? Tyrion, no, I mean to send away all my sister's guards. The queen will never allow that. Oh, I think she may. I am her brother. When you've known me long, longer, you'll learn that I mean everything I say. <laughs> especially the lies. Even the yeah. lies, especially the yeah. lies. Right? And... um. You know, but but the 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 idea meaning that Tyrion's lies are purposeful. You know, there are people who are pathological liars, um, kind of like there are people. You know, we call them kleptomaniacs or pathological thieves, yeah. right? Yeah, I think um, there's that and they, scene. They lie with I don't no know purpose. if you've seen in you've probably seen everyone's seen this in Infinity War. You've got this sort of um, exchange between Thanos and Loki. Mm-hmm. And Loki's like, why would I lie? And, and Thanos says, well, I would imagine it's like breathing for you, right? Yes. <laughs> it's yes. a great, great example of like, yeah, maybe Loki doesn't need a reason to lie. He's just a trickster. And that's what tricksters do, right? Exactly. And so taking Tyrion at his word here, he is the anti-Loki. Yes, he lies. Uh-huh. But he always lies intentionally <laughs> with a purpose, whether right. you know we can ethically justify that purpose or not. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I like that passage uh, for sure. I mean, I kind of always like it when Varys and Tyrion uh, are sort of, ex- you know, exchanging wits, wit and wisdom. I I think early on you said something along the lines of like, you know, you sort of listed off all the people at court, and they're all kind of liars. I sometimes I I, I wonder about Varys. Like, I don't know. I think that. I think Varys is usually pretty honest with Tyrion. And I don't know if he's honest with everyone like that, but in this book especially, I feel like 
Varys is pretty much an open book when it comes to Tyrion. I think he views Tyrion as something of an ally, or maybe he's trying him on to see if he'll be a good ally. But I don't get the sense that Varys is trying to deceive Tyrion. No, that's a that's a good point. Not only about Varys' relation with Tyrion, but just maybe, I mean, even broader, yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm rethinking, you know, how much does Varys, with anyone, actually lie, right? Varys, right, he's the, the master whispers. Uh, he's got his little birds, right? right. Feed him information, right? Varys trades in truth, right? right? Now he hides truth a lot. So, so you know, there's, there's obviously a big, you know, debate about is not revealing a truth, a deception versus just telling a falsehood. Yeah, I, I, I would agree that not only with Tyrion, but maybe even more broadly, I don't know if Varys is actually that dishonest in terms of telling people falsehoods all the time versus gathering information, mm-hmm. holding it, mm-hmm. and revealing it strategically. And he's helping Tyrion sort of deceive the general public. You know, he's sort of set up this system for Tyrion to go into the brothel and then, you know, all of his disguises so Tyrion can kind of keep Shay a secret, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you could say that Varys's entire persona may be a a, a mummer's farce, right? He, he He's practiced in acting and actors are really good at creating an illusion. We don't really know what Varys's motives are. And so he's really good at conceiving, concealing the truth on the macro level. But I do get the sense that on the micro level, for Tyrion at least, he seems like he's he's pretty much an ally. And of course, you know, in the show, we see how their relationship evolves. Um, it, it also speaks to you know this other notion that you know everyone needs a friend, in in the sense that Aristotle meant like a true friend of virtue, Uh someone that you can be completely open and honest with, you can truly be yourself with, who wishes, who seeks your good as you seek their good. Mm. Um, You know, Cersei and Jaime, right? That's their relationship. And, you know, Daenerys and, um, well, various people throughout the Mm. story, right? Kind of evolves um, as as people disappear and die. Daenerys and Missandei seem to have that kind of relationship. Does Aristotle say everyone needs a friend of virtue or does he think it's relatively rare? Well, he says both. He says to to be truly happy, you need at least one, if not a few of these types of friendships. But he does also say they're extremely rare. So maybe it's pretty rare to be truly happy. It's pretty, well... It's pretty right. It's pretty rare to be truly happy because there's a risk because in in these types of friendships, right? It's mutual self giving mm-hmm. to the other. My happiness is bound up in what makes you happy, mm-hmm. and vice versa. You know, the purest form of this might be something like a, the parent child relationship, you know, where you have truly unconditional love, and and the child's happiness and well being is you know part of what constitutes the mm-hmm. parent's happiness. Um, that's a different type of relationship. And friendship, but it's it's analogous to this yeah, type of thing. It, where... it is asymmetrical, though. I feel like oh, the parent child is asymmetrical. For I, sure. I, just just for I think I've I've covered this on the pod, but it might have been like a few years ago. What are Aristotle's three levels of friendship? Just for folks who are not up to speed. Yeah, so you have friendships of of uh, pleasure, just people you enjoy hanging mm-hmm. out with, people you your drinking buddy, mm-hmm. right? Something like that. Um, you know, the people you play Dungeons and Dragons with on Sunday night. Then there's friendships of utility. I think he would people almost view utility as sort of a more basic form. Like you you go to the butcher, the but you know, you have good good business relationships or something like that. And pleasantness would yeah, be sort of a, a higher level, would you say? Yeah, you're you're right. The the in the order he presents them, utility comes does come first, then pleasure. Yeah. Um you know, the barista who I chit chat with every right. time I, I get my coffee, uh-huh. right? Versus me and that barista now go and start hanging out together and going to movies. So they both enjoy sci fi, right. right? Do then, you know, we really truly care about each other and we form this, you know, deep friendship of virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, that, yeah, that's going to be very so rare. So I would say, all right, so let's, let's just for an example here, I do think that. Varys and Tyrion 
are kind of at that that basic utility level. I think that for for whatever reason, they've decided we both need an ally in the city. You're pretty smart, and so far you've proven trustworthy. Let's let's mutually use each other for selfish benefit. I think that, that there's something about that, but I think that there's almost an aspiration. I feel like. Tyrion almost views Varys as someone that I kind of enjoy. I kind of enjoy my talks with him. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the, like I, I kind of, I think Tyrion almost views us as anyone who can kind of match wits with him. I think, I think mm-hmm. he sort of gets a gets pleasure from that. Oh, absolutely. And and again, there's there there aren't no pun intended stark bright lines <laughs> in between mm. these three types of friendships. Right, right, right. Yeah, you can and, build you and... can build on these things. Exactly. And of course, and that's the thing too, like in the friendship of virtue, you know, that friendship could bring great utility to your life and ought to be pleasurable. Right. So, so yeah, so I, I agree with you. I think, especially at this point of the story, the primary, it's primarily a friendship of utility that they both at some level take some pleasure in, insofar as they're both able to be honest about themselves Uh with each Uh other that's kind of the seed of that friendship of virtue it's not there yet the the seed is kind of there i was just gonna ask can you think of anyone in this entire series of novels that is an example of a friendship of virtue i was thinking of john and sam Mm. otherwise hard to find hard to find yeah uh it is hard to find i think and, and partly because a lot of these relationships aren't um, that long lasting. Uh-huh. Um, I think at some level, Brienne and Jamie sort of evolved that type of relationship. Uh, yeah, they they do have. Yes, I, I'm be very interested to see what happens with that friendship um, because they they kind of start out as sort of frenemies, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. They both kind of respect and, each other. They both kind of need each other to survive. But you know, uh, that that's really and maybe Brienne and Cat. But even so, it's like how well again asymmetrical uh, mm-hmm. mutual appreciation. Uh, what about Renly and Loras? What do you think about Renly and Loras being sort of a friendship of virtue? Um, to, so to be perfectly honest, I'd have to delve back into how, how deeply the book describes their Does relationship. Does not describe it with any, like any, I mean, but there is something about. So, so not much better than the show. Oh, right? even worse than the show. It, it's sort of all hinted. Yeah. Um, so, so, so then it seems more just like a, maybe the, the pleasure they take in each yeah, other. Yeah. I mean, Renly laughs at Loris's jokes and sort of enjoys his company we're not really told you know that they're you know how virtuous their friendship is in in terms of like does loris make renly a better king does renly make loris a better knight are they both sort of iron sharpening iron until they are both better people we don't really know that yeah and again that could all even be at the level of utility right um the other example that just came to mind would be uh egret and Jon mm. snow Okay. Uh, obviously, you know, there's a turn in that relationship, um, but I don't think that I don't think know, Aristotle would have considered a romantic, any kind of romantic interest along his scale of friendship. But I, of course, we know better than Aristotle at this point, right? <laughs> well, that, that exactly that's true. I mean, the romance side is almost kind of an aside uh-huh. thing. Um, like it could be there or not be there, right? But it's not essential to any of these relationships. Right. Um, but no, it's, it's not even so much the romance as I always just think of, you know, obviously Egret's famous line, you know, nothing, Jon mm-hmm. Snow. She's always trying to make Jon Snow a better person. Right. Huh. She really is kind of interested in his, you know, survival among, you know, the wildlings. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, and, and she's trying to help him to integrate is, and be It better. is interesting yeah. to me that... Jon Snow seems to be at the center of these conversations because I was just thinking like maybe Jon and Tormund get to some level, but there's some level of Jon's sort of inability to, 
I don't want to say be self-interested, but he's sort of like all of John's emotions are on the surface. You almost always know what John is up to, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a vulnerability that's attached to that. And it's almost no, like right. this and person is them. is yeah. risking showing me his true self. Maybe it, it's actually worth making friends with this person. Whereas I feel like, you know, Tyrion, for all of his sort of singularity and his loneliness, his cynicism does not allow him to show his true self to too many people. And mm-hmm. so for someone like Tyrion to establish a true friend is going to be almost impossible. I don't know. Maybe maybe Tyrion and Jamie. Yeah. Interesting. I, I love I, I love I always love talking about Varys whenever I get a chance. I'm sort of. Oh yeah, I'm a big Barris <laughs> fan. I I don't think he's a villain, uh, but uh, I I might be, I might be off. I might be wrong. Um, we'll just have to see. <laughs> one thing that Tyrion is, I mean, talk about consequences. Um, totally dismissive of Alistair Thorne, and given as readers, we know the macro story. We know that this is a story mm-hmm. of ice and fire. And here we have, you know, sort of a portent of the ice magic. And Tyrion, of course, is he's he's worried about being embarrassed in court. So he take he goes on the offensive and embarrasses Alice or Thorne so that he can save face. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is all sort of rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Who's going to send, you know, playing the Game of Thrones, who's going to send to the Iron Throne of a kingdom that is potentially doomed. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, what does Alice Thorne want from this exchange? Do you think? I mean, he, he wants, you know, he wants help, right. To, you know, he sees the danger. He obviously doesn't understand how huge this danger is. No one at this point understands the army right. that is right beyond the wall, but there's a power that, they can understand, right? So it's not even like because Tyrion gives them more yeah, men. Yeah, if he right? wants Again, like men, said, he gets more men. There's no doubt about right. that. But but it's almost, but he wants more than that. I mean, he probably wants you know the 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 Grand Maester to step in and be like, we need to study this. Yeah, we're going to devote all of our resources. Right. right, we're going to devote our best science. You know, and their you know Westerosi understanding yeah, of science. In the meantime, let's alchemy. send all the armies that are warring against each other up to the wall. You know, I think that. That would be the best case scenario, which is absolutely not going to happen. Right. And of course, right. And that's, you know, the complicated nature of not only stories of whole, but particularly in this book, because this is the max of the clash of Kings, right? This is where you have the maximal disunification, uh-huh. right? Uh, among all the kingdoms. And yeah, what does Alistair Thorne want? Without it, maybe even consciously knowing it, he wants unity. He wants the seven kingdoms united to fight this new bigger threat that even he doesn't know how big it is, but he's scared. Right. You know, not, I mean, he's a brave, you know, warrior, but he's scared of this unknown, ununderstandable threat that to, you know, this day has only been the stuff of children's stories and nightmares. Right. It's, It's the idea like, you know, take, take the worst nightmare, the worst, you know, fantasy, evil mm. that we've ever been told mm. in our mythology and so on and then you discover actual evidence that it's real <laughs> right right yeah well in addition to that you know Halaster Thorne was once a man of court right he he was he was a lord or a knight or something under the Targaryen reign mm. i don't think he likes being made a joke of um and so, of course, he has to sort of lend the seriousness to the cause or else he seems like a joke himself. No, that's a good point. Yeah, that, that his own his own need to save face for himself. You know, he talks about how, yeah, how, how he was been basically, basically treated dishonorably yeah. when he arrived. And part of that, it, it's, a, it's a mix, right? It's a mix of the urgency of the message he needs to relay, but also, yeah, his own pride. Well, and here's an example of Tyrion telling a lie, not for any kind of virtue, not, not, not for a greater outcome. You know, he says, Braun, this is not well done. This is an old friend of mine. How could you let him, you know, sit for weeks without an audience? 
in reality, he wants to embarrass Alistair Thorne, who, who, who sort of to get back at him for their exchanges up at the wall. This is just revenge, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Jason, let me ask you maybe a question that's discipline specific. Mm-hmm. The practice of ex cathedra. This is when the uh, the pope. Mm. Uh, actually speaks with divine voice, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the seat of, from the seat of power. I guess is that a concept that had political currency, and like for instance, it seems like in this chapter, Tyrion is ex cathedra in a sense, mm. or is that something that was specific to the Catholic Church? I, I mean, I think the idea of. The, the the ruling monarch, whoever it is, you know, speaking from a throne, right? Whether it's, you know, we just had this, you know, major coronation ceremony for, you know, King Charles III now, right? Uh-huh. Um, and not that he sits on the throne, you know, right? It's only ceremonious that he sits on the throne. And of course, you know, the British monarch's power is not what it what it was. Um, but in terms of what I think is influencing George R. R. Martin, I do think it's a combination of just the power, the, the temporal power that medieval monarchs would wield. Um, but then someone also thinking, uh, because of course religion is mixed up with the political forces yeah. in Westeros, right? And you had relationships like that in in the medieval church. The notion of the of the Catholic Pope uh, speaking uh, ex cathedra, uh, which is Latin for from the chair, from the seat, right. um, it refers specifically to. Uh, the chair of St. Peter, who was, uh, you know, one of the original 12 apostles. Who's thought and... to be the, by tradition, the first Pope, right? Exactly. So, so the Pope is understood as, as the vicar of Christ, right? He's the successor of Peter, the apostle, but he represents Christ on earth. And the notion of the Pope speaking sort of with this sort of infallible authority, mm-hmm. ex cathedra, it's actually a relatively new idea. Oh, okay. Uh, in the church. Yeah. And it it is tied to politics to a certain extent. It came about uh, at the first Vatican council. A lot of people may have heard of uh, Vatican II that happened in the 1960s. This was the previous council back in the 1860s. Okay. So uh, this is a modern concept. It's a modern concept and was happening at a time when the Catholic church was losing its temporal power because you have this region of Italy known as the Papal States. Uh-huh. And what happened in the mid-18th centuries, you had King Vittor Emmanuel unifying Italy. So the modern country of Italy we know today only came about about 150, 160 years ago. Uh-huh. And part of what happened is they conquered those papal lands and stripped the Pope of his temporal power. So it was kind of like the assertion of, of, of papal infallibility in matters of faith and morals right. would say, okay, you might have the temporal power, but I still have this power right. you know, over religious things. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess probably a, an anachronism on my part, but I thought that this sort of maybe stemmed from the idea that that whoever is sitting in the chair seems to have more authority. Like even the king's words carry more when he's sitting on the throne or something like that. I mean, the throne is symbolic, and of course, in in Game of Thrones, we have a literal throne, right? The Iron Throne. Um, The chair of St. Peter, if you go to St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, there is this giant chair at the back of the basilica that is the chair of Peter, but the the Pope doesn't ever actually sit in that chair, right? Mm -hmm. The the chair is is ethereal, it's symbolic, Mm -hmm. Um, and and the authority goes with the, the person who is elected Pope and he carries that authority as Pope. So it's not like anyone would sit quote in the Pope's chair mm. and wield the Pope's authority. Right. Um, in fact, when the Pope dies, um, there's a, a particular Cardinal, uh, the Dean of the college of Cardinals who kind of takes over running day-to-day operations right. at the Vatican until the new Pope is elected, but his authority is very limited. Um, it's not like he gets to, play Pope until the new Pope's elected. He's got this kind of limited caretaker authority as quote, you know, kind of like the hand of the Pope. So Tyrion as hand of the King has much more power and authority, especially when he is sitting on the iron throne, as we see in this chapter. Yeah. I think that, I mean, you could view Tyrion as well. You're kind of temporary because 
you know, Tywin's going to show up eventually and take his place as Hand of the King. Or you could view him as, well, you're not the actual king. My sense is, though, if you're sitting in the Iron Throne, it just has the authority of the Iron Throne. It's like the office itself has Mm. authority. And I don't really know if that's true. I don't really know if it's like, well, it's symbolic in the way that, you know, that you said that the, the Pope's chair is, is symbolic. or But maybe there's no sort of like, well, those are the rules. It was said from the chair. It must be the law now. I'm not sure how to understand the authority. Yeah, I think, I think it's kind of something in the middle. I think the Iron Throne is largely symbolic, like the Pope's chair, except that the fact that it is a throne that people do actually sit on. But... But you have to have the the rightful authority to sit there, right? Uh-huh. So, in other words, let, let's say if um, you know Sansa Stark snuck in at night and jumped into the Iron Throne, <laughs> it's not like she could wield pronouncements <laughs> that would be binding on all of the Westerosi, right? right? right, right. <laughs> um, you know, Tyrion gets the right to sit in the Iron Throne as the hand of the king, and later we see you know Tywin uh, as well uh-huh. when he takes over his hand. Um, we saw Ned Stark when he was saying, so, so it, it does seem pretty limited to the king right. or queen when the case of Cersei later right, on right, right. or the hand or, or the hand. Because we saw, yeah, we saw um, Ned do it in the first book. Yep. He sat on the Iron Throne and said, you know, sent out Dondarrion to take down the mountain or whatever. And it was, you know, everyone basically had to follow those orders as if he was the king um, I did note, however, that, you know, Alistair Thorne's kind of being mocked in this chapter. And he waits until Tyrion descends bef- mm-hmm. before he, he he really kind of retorts in kind. You know, it's sort of mm-hmm. he, he has some sort of respect for the office. But then as soon as Tyrion's down at the bottom... You know, I'm not. I'm not. I didn't come here to be insulted by the likes of you. You know, that that's sort of the the tone. And I think that there's something about. Well, I gotta wait till that guy's not sitting there before I actually speak my mind. No, I think that's a good point. I, I do think that again, given even if that's not the sitting in the chair that gives Tyrion the authority, when he's sitting in the chair exercising his office mm. as hand, that is different than when he's just Tyrion Lannister, right? And and his descending from the throne is symbolic of that. Um, I mean, I, I would suspect that, you know, for example, if if Tyrion had like dismissed the rest of the court, it's an empty throne room, but for whatever reason, he's still choosing to sit in the chair. Sir Alistair might still have talked to him the way he did, mm-hmm. just because at that moment, sitting in the chair or not sitting in the chair, he's no longer functioning. In court as the hand of the king. Right. Huh. Yeah. Um, all right. So what else struck you about this chapter? So the the last major thing, you know, event uh, in the story is, of course, the exchange with uh, Grandmaster Pycelle. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Where, you know, they, they catch him with the with the young girl, send her away. Tyrion's um, canary trap finally sort of has an outcome. Mm-hmm. He, he learns that Pycelle is the one who... Spilled the beans. Yeah, and, and again, that was a very effective use of of deception because because yeah, he told he tells three different things to three different people, and only one of them's the you know uh, the mm-hmm. truth. And um, so yeah, so again, consequentialists very much approving of Tyrion's methodology here. <laughs> right. Okay. So he decides. All right. So then he goes. <laughs> he goes. We we learn something new about Pycelle, Right. He's he's. Uh, clearly not the the daughter that he always pretended to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's got a young woman in his bed who uh, Shaga falls in love with immediately. Or at least falls in lust. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. We don't, we don't know how, how into virtue ethics Shaga is. Right. So, (laughs) Um, uh, and then, I guess we get some sort of confirmation on a number of plots that were introduced in in a uh, in the first novel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Pycelle sort of confirms that 
you know, John Arryn found out about Cersei, and so then someone had John Arryn killed, and who was it? You know, who did the poisoning? Maybe it's Pycelle, Tyrion thinks, and then sort of John Arryn points to Hugh of the Vale, who we knew, you know, who who was John Arryn's squire, and who conveniently gets killed by the mountain in, a, in at the tournament, right? It's it's a very neat cover up. The murder was done in in public with everyone watching and you know with with plausibly like well the mountain lance slipped or something like that. So the other interesting thing that jumps out at me in, in this scene and it's actually a theme throughout this entire chapter is the idea of 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 humiliation whether public or private. Mm. Um, again, Tyrion, you know, given his, his physical stature has basically been humiliated his entire life. Right. Yeah, he's and, no stranger you know, to humiliation. He's no stranger to humiliation. So he does, you know, enjoy using humiliation as a, as a tool. Um, so, you know, so he drugs Cersei, you know, like you said, gives her a laxative, gives her the runs. All he needed was incapacitate her. He could have given her something that would just knocked her out and she slept for 12 yeah. hours. He he wants to humiliate her. He wants her to be stuck on the privy, uh-huh. you know. Um, and you know, we already talked about how he he humiliates Alistair Thorne, you know, probably out of revenge, but also to save face himself right. in court. And now he's humiliating where, where, Pycelle. And now he's humiliating Pycelle, right? Because he tells you know, Shaga, cut off his manhood. Right. And of course, the, and making him sort of stand naked, and then he gets his beard chopped off, and which for a, a maester is right huge, yeah. right? You know, because you know a beard, it's not a straight. You know, the symbol is the chains that that's the actual symbol, but having a long beard is also does again the sign of age and wisdom right. and so yeah. on. And so he's so so he's be, he's being re- removed of his manhood, qua maester, not his literal manhood as we think of it, but. So, all right, yeah, all right. So he does this to Pycelle, and then, of course, I mean, there's there's a sense in which the axe that ch- chops off the beard is maybe a foreshadowing of what happens to Tyrion's face. Mm. Because, you know, Martin loves these sort of poetic justice uh, motifs. Like mm-hmm. like Jamie pushes a, a child out at the window with a hand, he gets that hand chopped off. So yeah. maybe Tyrion chops off Pycelle's, you know, something something that's growing from his face, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, done to humiliate, basically, N- unnecessary. Uh, and Tyrion ends up getting his nose chopped off by an axe. Maybe that's a, a a little bit of sort of in world justice. No, I think that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, having those types of again sort of karmic outcomes and um, and also yeah, just poetic callbacks. It kind of reminds me again of you know bring evoke another genre. You know, Lucas with Star Wars. You know, sometimes people complain that you look at the three trilogies and it's like the same story being told three times. And Lucas is like, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> these these stories are thematic and it also shows that the, the hero the hero's the same, journey is circular right the hero's journey is circular and you know the human drama is always a human drama and you know raises this question and this is a question also for song of ice and fire you know can you break the cycle mm-hmm. what does it take mm-hmm. to break the cycle otherwise what you know we've seen you know way back during the age of the targaryens is going to be no different. You know, it's no different with um, Robert in charge. It's going to be no different if Cersei, you know, that the Lannisters ascend the Iron Throne. And, you know, maybe it'll be no different if Daenerys, the Targaryens, through Daenerys, retake the Iron It's just the same pattern over again. So how do you break the pattern? You know, uh, Jason, that reminds me of a good book about Star Wars and philosophy. <laughs> Would you mind? Would you mind uh, sharing the title and the topic? Yeah. So my my good friend uh, Kevin Decker and I have uh, recently published our third edited collection 
of essays uh, written by philosophers, mostly philosophers, few other uh, types of academics in there uh, on on philosophical themes in Star uh -huh. Wars. So um, the, the first book was called Star Wars and Philosophy, More Powerful Than You Can Possibly Imagine. Then several years later, we did um, The Ultimate Star Wars and Philosophy, um, which I'm blanking with the subtitle. Oh, you must unlearn what you have uh -huh, learned. Uh -huh. And now in last February, we published uh, Star Wars and Philosophy Strikes Back. This is the way. Okay, interesting. And uh, yeah, each book is a collection of, of essays uh, on, again, all sorts of various philosophical themes on Star Wars from not just the, the films, but also the television shows, comic books, uh, the animated series. Uh, even there's, there's even a whole essay on the blue snaggletooth action figure. So Decker and Eberl... Star Wars and Philosophy Strike Back. Yep, yeah, available on Amazon or or your favorite independent bookseller. Um, notable introductions in this chapter. Um, no notable introductions that I could tell. Uh, departures. All of Cersei's guard departs uh, in this chapter. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure Thorn goes back to the wall and goodbye to Maester Pycelle's beard. Um, <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Uh, it'll grow back. Um, differences with the show. Uh, Littlefinger does use the line, leave me out of your next deception. But the setting is different. Uh, this doesn't happen at court. This sort of happens in Tyrion, Solar. And uh, immediately Tyrion does involve Littlefinger in his next deception. And so basically this chapter ends with so almost a bit of enmity between Littlefinger and Tyrion. Um, Tyrion looks at the the knife at, on, you know, the Valyrian steel knife on the belt of Peter Baelish, mm -hmm. and almost gets a sense of like, ah, I got you back. It's a little bit of vengeance there. Um, in the show, it's sort of like, ah, let's still be allies uh, because there's a, a, a you know something greater to be gained. And I don't think that the plot to rescue Jamie made it into the show. In this no. chapter, the, the, the idea is that we're going to send a huge host up to escort Cleos Frey. And included in this host are three outlaws that are going to pretend to be soldiers, but they're going to actually rescue Jamie from his imprisonment. N none of that happens in the show. Yeah, that, yeah that's exactly right. Um I definitely feel like in this season of the show, you do have a lot more conniving, let's say, between Peter Baelish, Littlefinger, and Varys. Mm, yeah, there's almost a and rivalry, right? You, you see mm -hmm. their dialogue, and all of the almost all of the the dialogue between Varys and Baelish is sort of show invention. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I I like that aspect of the of the show. I like to sort of see them reveal bits and pieces of of themselves uh to each other almost as if they're sitting at the poker table mm -hmm. and again they I, and uh, i think they have different end games they're, they're they're both using similar techniques um well they have like their own techniques um but they're i think they're equally skillful at manipulating other people and using deception whether it's outright lies mm -hmm. or withholding of truths um in ways, but I think they have, they're aiming at different things. They're, yeah, they're playing the same game, and yet the win for Varys would be something like, let's get someone altruistic on the Iron Throne. Or let's cause mm -hmm. the least amount of uh, bloodshed in the kingdom, or something along those lines. Baelish is like, uh, Let's create a massive amount of chaos and see who can na navigate it best. And it's probably going to be me. And and I, I'm mm -hmm. I, I'll get I'll have more power when it's over, and and that will be uh, the best outcome to my mind. Um, and I think you've got probably Tyrion somewhere, sort of maybe being tempted by, you know, an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, or something like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think it definitely, I mean, throughout the story, but at this point in particular, I think the three of them, they're, they're kind of the triumvirate of, you know, of, of again, talk about friendship of utility, mm -hmm. right? That 
they're they're kind of a little triangle of 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 utility friends, each with their own purpose. Um, and they're and and I think also definitely they're the best ones at playing the game. This book is perfect. I mean, this. I mean, you, you <laughs> Game of Thrones was the name of the first book. Uh, th- this one really showcases the game. I, I think. Yes. Um, I just can. Can we run through a few things? There's a few things I want to mention. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to hear your take on uh-huh. it really quickly. So, what I I've got. Uh, one question about Tyrion and one one question about Bronn. Firstly, um, Tyrion keeps going back to to Shay and keeps going back to to his initial love, who was a prostitute. And Taisha, I'm really yeah, conflicted. Yeah. Taisha, right? I'm really conflicted as to what Tyrion's perception of woman is. Like, do you think he sort of have has respect for these women that he's trying to? You know, he, he's kind of like defending the poor woman whose child was killed and i can't tell if he has any regard for women at all any respect for them um or or if it's just it's just an act Mm. i can't Mm. really tell what do you think it's interesting i don't okay so i don't know if taisha was a prostitute and honestly i don't know if shay's a prostitute either shay i'm not i'm not sure when she becomes a spy for uh, Tywin, so I'm not really sure about that. But in either case, Tyrion has perceived them both to be sex workers, right? Mm. And he asked this question out loud, almost kind of in spite of himself. He says, "Can you know? Can a whore really love anyone?" And then he says, "I don't. Don't answer. That. I don't really want to know." And I do think that there's a little moment where he he kind of exposes his true self. I think that Tyrion does wonder whether or not someone who you're paying for love will actually truly love you. But he is more committed to the lie than anything else. He wants to continually self-deceive. He needs to believe the lie because it gives him a feeling of normalcy. And he's he's great at certain things and he's not good at other things. But really, what he really wants deep down is to feel like a normal person. Uh, he wants to feel like a human and he has a view of what that looks like and it doesn't look like him. And so the fact that he believes that Shay loves him, even though he knows that might be something that he's deceiving himself about. It provides him with a sense of normalcy. And so he's using Shay. He's using Shay for his own uh, self worth. Okay. What do What do you think? I think Tyrion is a bit of uh, a pick me boy, as we would call them in the in the the world of TikTok. Wait, wait. Say that I again. I'm not in the world of TikTok. A pick me boy. So uh, these are men who will act like they speak for the plight of women. Oh. Uh, in fact, they only do it uh, to kind of get women to like them. Did you say pick me, boy? Yes. So, so um, they, they so want the women to is, pick pick them? Yeah, so this is the born out of theory that there is such a thing as a pick me girl and a pick me boy. The pick me girls, they uh-huh. tend to hang out with the boys and say, oh, girls are so... Ah, uh, yeah. So I hang out with the boys it. and... Uh, so, and the pick me boy, his strategy technically genuinely is to be like, oh, I think women should be treated well and everything, but actually he's just doing it. To... This is all subterfuge. He's not a, he's not a legit feminist. Exactly. Interesting. Um, so I think, I think he, 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 we have a few, a, a sense that he cares about women. He doesn't like want to look down on them, but actually I think actions speak down the words. I think he has absolutely no regard for women at all. Interesting, um, and he only respects men, and I think we can we have evidence of that in the way that he treats women in his life. Well, it it would make a lot more sense of some of his more darker moments, right? I think when he sends M- Masetta to 
uh, to Dawn. I don't think if he he do that with her. I think he, he genuinely sees women as currency. Yeah, I think that's that's a point of, of of contention that he doesn't understand about his sister is that his sister right. There's a lot of people comparing Cersei and and Arya right. These are women who are born women, but actually, Cersei says in this book at one point right. Um, Jamie was given a sword and he was taught how to fight, but I wasn't. That's not fair. We looked identical. Yeah, right. And I think Tyrion completely misunderstands that about his sister because I think he has no regard for for the plight of women. And I think if he did, uh, they could get along better because really what Cersei is seeking is she seeking to get the respect a man gets. It's interesting. Well, she's, she's also she's also bullied him, right? Uh, his whole life. Yes. But but your point is that this is kind of we've seen this in lots of different relationships with Tyrion and women. Like he doesn't yeah. he doesn't really respect Penny um, when he meets Penny. You know, he ends up murdering Shay. That's I'm trying to think of other examples. Uh, with Tyrion and he, women, he, I think we have not seen Tyrion. He, he respects Sansa. What's that? He treats Sansa well. Yeah, but he, but even then, he's you know he's so much her senior that he can kind of lord it over her. Uh, even true. I'm wondering. We have not seen him yet with Danny, but I'm hoping that he does learn to respect. And try to serve Danny well, which would be a departure for his character, right? Yes, I think for sure that would be a departure. That would be quite quite surprising. Yeah, interesting. interesting.